Okay, uh, I apologize. Um, we're starting a couple minutes late uh, tonight, <clears throat> which means I figure if I start at 6.03, means I don't have to end until 7.03. So we'll see how that goes. Um, but let's, uh, let's go ahead and get started. Um, if you didn't get the handouts when you walked in, there's a few at the entrance. Uh, and let's, um, let's say a word there. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, we are thankful for the calling to uh, shed our old life and to put on uh, the clothes that belong to you, to, to robe ourselves in the life of Christ. And we pray, Lord, that as we wrestle with the, uh, the work of habit transformation, that uh, you would help us to keep our eyes focused on that goal, that we want to look more like you, we want to live more like you, we want to love more like you. Uh, and so we pray that you would help us in, in all of those pursuits tonight as we uh, seek to learn the skill and the process of uh, changing our habits. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> okay, so I want to just once again um, recap briefly where we've been the last couple of weeks. Um, we began two weeks ago talking about habit change. We talked about understanding habits. We had two really big ideas. The first big idea was that uh, the, uh, that our habits reside in a different portion of our brains than do our memory, reason, or logic, right? So our, your habits reside in your basal ganglia. Your memory, reason, and logic is largely your, your prefrontal lobe, prefrontal cortex, um, which is why you can't logic or reason your way out of habits, right? Or why you can't seem to remember uh, the habits that you want to change. Uh, we also talked about the idea uh, that our brains sort of naturally form habits. That's uh, a, a wonderful thing, but they don't... Um, they don't make value judgments, so they make good and bad habits automatically, and we have to sort our way through that process. The other thing we talked about two weeks ago was the idea of the habit loop, uh, and that was uh, this right here on the board, the idea that uh, every habit has three parts, a cue, a routine, and a reward. Uh, the cue is, is that thing that triggers you to engage in the routine, and the reward is um, what cements the habit as something you want to do. And uh, in general, when your brain engages in a habit, um, the, the prefrontal cortex can stop thinking and it's just your basal ganglia working, which means you're not really conscious uh, about what you're doing in the midst of a routine. That's why you can walk and talk at the same time, etc. Uh, and then we talked a little bit last week about uh, craving and this idea that um, eventually we come to anticipate the reward. So much so that, that we can, uh, remember that, that image from the, I think it was a monkey named Julio, uh, where he was getting the, the juice on his tongue and first he got, you'd see brain activity spike. He'd do the cue, the routine, the reward, and boom, the big spike of enjoyment and pleasure. Over time, he started getting the spike at the cue instead of at the reward because he was anticipating uh, the juice. He was excited about the juice. So the idea is that eventually habits develop those cravings, and um, they can be more or less powerful depending on the habit, but uh, craving is what helps cement habits so that uh, they happen automatically. And we also talked a little bit last week about... Um, how to start habits, and we talked about the idea that uh, ultimately in starting a habit, you have to define a reward and a cue. That whatever habit you want to start, you already know the routine, right? If the habit is exercising, you know the habit. You know what it means to exercise, um, but you have to make yourself do it, which means you have to define a reward. What am I looking forward to? What am I anticipating at the end? And we talked about rewards need to be um, short-term, long-term, internal, external. We talked about that stuff. And then we talked about what makes an effective cue and the idea is that a cue has to be something that um, you're going to see as often as you're going to do that habit. It has to be something that's relatively durable because habits will fall apart uh, without their cue. Does that make sense? All that's from the last couple of weeks. So <clears throat> I want to move ahead this, this evening and talk about how to change existing habits. Uh, how to change existing habits. Uh, and I'm curious, um, we, we've asked you guys this class to think about either a habit you wanted to start or a habit you wanted to change. Um, anybody willing to share, just by a show of hands, how many people are, are planning on uh, changing a habit rather than starting a habit? Who are my changers? Okay, all right. Uh, anybody want to share what their changing habit is? Reminding you that if you, um, if you have any kind of criminal habit you want to change, you might not want to announce it out loud, but um, anybody want to share a habit they like to change? Bob. Okay, excellent. <laughs> That's a great... <laughs> Bob says he's going to change from starving to learning how to cook. That's excellent. Okay, good. Good, important change. Good. Yeah, anybody else have a, have a change? Kari. <laughs> okay. All right. So Kari has a thrift store habit, um, possibly boarding on a hoarder habit that, uh, that she and her children wanted to change. Okay, that's good. That's good. 
others? Anybody else want to have anyone change? Joan. Sugar. Just in general, sugar. Okay. You're eating an orange right now. <laughs> There's a lot of sugar in that. Okay, okay. Great. Getting sugar out of your life. Okay, that's good. Ooh. Okay, so... Okay, Nancy, that's great. Um, so Nancy wants to work on biting her nails, uh, not biting her nails. Incidentally, uh, in the book, The Power of Habit, that we're drawing on, one of his illustrations is about a woman who bites her nails and how he gets her to change. It's really interesting. Yeah, it's great. Tom. Okay, uh, you, you want to change? You want to start doing that or change something about that habit? Okay, okay, fair enough, fair enough. So exercising first thing in the morning, you probably have to change something else so that you can... Okay, got it. Great. Good. Anybody else? Yep, Mike. Okay, great. Okay, awesome. Uh, uh, Mike says that he interrupts or talks over people, uh, and he'd like to change that. That's great. Excellent. Okay. That's, that, those, are, those are awesome. So uh, I want to think tonight about how we work on changing those habits, and, and I want to suggest... Um, First of all, that, that changing habits is harder than starting new habits. Um, it's harder because uh, once you've, we talked about this before, once you've learned a habit, it never goes away. Right? Ever had the experience of saying, I'm going to change a habit, like, like Joan said, I'm going I'm to stop eating sugar, right? Um, I, I can't tell you how many times I've said, usually at my mother-in-law's house during Christmas break, um, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go on a diet, and she'll say, oh, I just made some more cookies. Okay, great. Uh, have, it, have it ignored. Um, the, the, the process of changing habits is so difficult um, because once you get a habit, it never goes away, right? Um, we talked about this before. You, you could go get on a bike today and you could probably ride a bike, right? Even though you, many of us have not ridden bikes in years, maybe decades, you never learn, you never lose habits, okay? Uh, so the, the process of changing a habit um, is pretty tough. And, and I'd suggest there's a few folks that are, uh, there's a few obstacles that um, folks are maybe not aware of it, and some myths that folks are prone to believe in that, that keep us from that transformation. So I want to suggest three obstacles tonight that keep us from changing habits, and then four ways we overcome those obstacles, okay? Uh, and that's all in the notes, so if, if, you're, if you're wanting them. Uh, the, the first myth about change, or the first obstacle to change, is a lack of awareness. Um, and, and, and I'll talk to you what I mean by that. There's a myth that says um, we change by willpower, um, what does that mean, by the way? When somebody says, uh, uh, you know, just use your willpower, what, what, do we, what do we mean? Pretty hard to answer, right? Um, what's that? Struggle through it, okay? Just struggle through it. Um, just do it, okay? Um, the, the problem with willpower is that uh, it, it doesn't exist. Uh, wh- what I mean by that is there's, there's no part of the brain that we can say, here's your willpower, okay? Um, now, obviously, there's logic and reason. Um, and we're talking about logic and reason a little bit when we're talking about willpower. We're saying, hey, uh, you, know, you know this is the right choice. Stick with the right choice. Um, the, the problem is um, that idea of just doing it um, by logic and reason isn't going to help me change uh, that habits part of my brain. Right? So there's something uh, I've heard people call white-knuckle change. And, and white-knuckle change is the idea that, um, boy, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop doing something and it's like, you know, like you grab on something so hard that your knuckles start to change white. Like I'm just desperately holding on, right? So um, we often use this term in talking about addictions. We say, um, boy, I'm, I'm addicted to alcohol or whatever. I'm just going to stop drinking. I'm going to go cold turkey. And it's a white knuckle kind of change, right? You just wake up one day and you say, I'm not going to do that anymore. Uh, and usually there's a pattern that comes with white knuckle change. Usually uh, it's um, abstinence or abstaining from that thing followed by relapse. Right? That usually it's, it's impossible to maintain a white-knuckle change over the long haul, especially about... Uh, in, in the Christian world, we call this uh, sin, repent, repeat. Right? Uh, and uh, I've had a lot of sin, repent, repeat stories in my life, right? where I say, all right, God, this is going to be the time. No, this is going to be the time. Uh, and I really mean it when I apologize and repent. And then I do it again. And, then I, um, and, and part of the problem is we have a lack of awareness. We, we don't understand what's behind that habit or that desire or that sin or whatever it is. And because we don't know enough about it, we can't change it, okay? So the, the first problem we have is this, this sort of uh, lack of awareness, okay? Uh, the, the second obstacle we have to change 
um, is what, what I call a lack of process. Uh, and, and there's a myth that goes with this as well. The, the myth is that uh, if I can get a long-term goal in my head, that'll help me change, right? And we talked about this last week, that we're, we're, we're short goal-minded creatures, right? We're short-term-minded creatures, and, which means um, who here has ever said in your life, boy, I hope I can lose weight? I have, like, a lot the last week. Um, does that do anything for you at all? No. What do you, what do you call a goal without a plan? A wish. That's right. I was going to call it a lie, but that was way better. That was a wish. Right? <clears throat> right. Um, a, a goal without a plan is a wish, right? It's a, it's a, or it's a lie I tell myself. I have this goal, I'm going to do this thing. Well, if I don't have a plan, I'm not going to do it, right? Uh, and, and so w- w- we struggle with a lack of process, right? We think we're well, just wanting to do it is enough, and we don't have that um, process that helps us get there. So we're going to talk about that process tonight. Uh, and then the, the last obstacle for us is a lack of support. Um, and there's another myth, and, and the, the myth is, this, there's some truth in this. The myth is that, um, boy, when I or somebody else hits rock bottom, that's when change is going to happen. Now, and we'll talk about hitting rock bottom a little bit next week when we talk about addictions, because there is some truth in that. In fact, uh, when, when dealing with addictions, sometimes we talk about raising the bottom to help people hit it sooner. Um, the, the, the effect, the, the, the positive quality of hitting the bottom, hitting rock bottom, is, is some awareness that there's a problem. But if I hit the rock bottom and I don't have uh, the skills, the faith, and the support to change, I'm not going to change. Right? Uh, and we see this all the time. Uh, 80% of criminals, oh, sorry, 80% of convicted persons um, who go to jail for more than five years um, after they're released will end up back in jail. 80%, right? You would think that going to jail for five years or more would be hitting rock bottom. But 80% of people who do that go back after they're released. Um, because just hitting rock bottom without support and faith and skills is not sufficient to make you change. Okay? Uh, so we're going to talk about how we um, overcome those three obstacles. Uh, and, and the first thing we do is, is we've got to work on awareness. Um, <clears throat> let's see if I can um, pull up some scripture for you really quick. So if you've got a Bible and you want to look at Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, <clears throat> Ephesians 5 is um, this beautiful conversation that Paul has Oh no, it's going to want to have a password. I don't know the password. Do I? What was it? Oh, is that it? TC. Come on, password. This is going to be gr- mm, no. This is this is my moment to shine right here. Hold on. Okay, well, <clears throat> never mind. <clears throat> So just trust me that this is in the Bible. <clears throat> or read your own Bible, and that way you can know for sure. Um, <clears throat> so the, the uh, fifth chapter of Ephesians, the eighth verse, Paul says this, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. That is why it is said, Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. <clears throat> Love this language of um, exposing things to the light. Okay? And I, I think the, the very first thing we have to do if we want to work on habit transformation in our lives is that we've got to work on exposing things to the light. Um, which means both to ourselves and others. Okay? Um, this is one of the reasons in the, in the 12 steps, one of the first steps is uh, this idea that we have to admit that we're powerless uh, in, in AA, the, the 12 steps of AA, admit that we're powerless over alcohol. Right? Um, we have to begin by um, letting the truth be clear to us and to other people. Um, this also has a, has a more granular level. As I'm working on, on changing my habits, um, it's not enough just to recognize I have a habit. I have to figure out um, what, the, what the habit loop looks like for whatever behavior it is that I want to change. Um, so, uh, for example, um, <clears throat> I, I've shared before that I have a habit around 10 o'clock and around 3 o'clock of getting up from my desk and wandering down to the kitchen in the church uh, cafeteria, opening the refrigerator and looking around for, uh, you know, just something to snack on. Uh, what's that? Usually it's chocolate or donuts. Occasionally it was this morning. Let's see, uh, at 10 o'clock I had a, a blueberry donut, I think. 
And I think at uh, 3 o'clock today, I had an uh, ice cream sandwich with chocolate chips. <coughs> um, so my diet is going really well. Um, uh, and and the, the, the problem is, if I just say, all right, well, uh, I have a habit of getting up too often from my desk and going and snacking on food, I'm just going to not do that anymore, uh, I can probably accomplish that for a while, maybe an hour, maybe a day, maybe a week. But eventually that's going to break down. Right? Eventually my white knuckle change isn't going to hold on to it. I've got to understand how and why that's happening. So the first thing I want to do is I want to work on some, something that we call awareness training. So I'm not interested in stopping the behavior. And this even goes for more serious behaviors. So if, <clears throat> if you struggle with, uh, you know, alcohol addiction or um, gambling or pornography or whatever else, um, my first thought is not let's get you to stop doing that. My first thought is, let's work on your awareness training, right? So I want you to take um, some kind of notes, actual notes on a daily basis, every time you're cued, every time you're triggered into your habit. So <clears throat> if your habit is eating sugar, or uh, if your habit is biting your nails, I, I want you, every time you do that, to write down what was going on the minute you did that, right? The minute you went and had that donut from the fridge, or the minute you started chewing your nails, what was going on? And you may have to do that for a week, or two weeks, or three weeks. Every single time you do it, take a note. Okay, uh, I chewed my nails because this. Uh, and what I want you to do ultimately is I want you to come up with your cue. Right? And you may have several cues for your habit. Um, you may discover <coughs> uh, the, the example uh, uh, in, the, in the book Power of Habit about nail biting is the woman says she feels a little bit of tension in her fingers. Um, and whenever there's uh, uh, stress outside her life, it manifests in this tension in her fingers. And as soon as she feels that tension in her fingers, she starts to bite. Uh, and he says, all right, you, you've got your cue. Uh, at that point, you've identified what it is that's triggering you into that behavior. Um, uh, Mike mentioned that he wants to work on not talking over people um, when they're talking. So I would say, um, don't beat yourself up about it. Just start observing when that happens. So if you have a conversation with somebody and they're talking and you notice yourself talking over them, go back and say, what was the cue? Like what happened in me or to me that made me start that? Okay, and that's going to take a while. So uh, you might discover there are several cues, and then you start doing some trial and error, right? So I might say, boy, I, I'm cued to go have my donut or my ice cream sandwich at 10 o'clock and 3 o'clock um, because <clears throat> I think I'm bored, or I think I'm um, kind of uh, lonely and want to talk to somebody I've been sitting at my desk too long, or um, I just need some exercise, right? Or, well, whatever that cue might be, I've got to figure that out. I'm going to try it out, test it out. Um, and then I've got to figure out what my reward is. <clears throat> what am I seeking? And here's the problem. Um, we often assume that the habit is the reward, right? So I'm drinking alcohol because that's what I want. I want to be drunk. Usually that's not the case. Um, usually I find that the, the reward is something else that the habit achieves for me, right? So maybe I'm drinking alcohol because... Uh, I'm stressed and it makes me not stressed. Or I'm scared and it makes me not scared, right? Or I feel alone and it makes me not feel that way anymore. Um, so <clears throat> your, your cue is usually something pretty simple, right? It could be uh, I'm bored. Um, and your reward is usually something um, often with an ingrained habit pretty personal, right? Um, getting that donut makes me not feel lonely anymore, okay? Um, uh, You've got to work on this awareness so you, you, you take your notes for your cues and you have to do this, um, AA calls it a, a searching and fearless personal inventory, but, but work on digging into what your reward is and don't be satisfied with the idea that my reward is the thing, right? So if, I, uh, if my habit is sugar, my reward isn't the donut, right? My reward is something else. The donut is the routine. Um, what do I get out of that? Um, maybe it's a little burst of energy. Uh, I, I, so personally, I found... Um, that I tend to do a lot of eating between about 8 o'clock and 11.30 or 12 when I go to bed in the evenings. And I, I finally figured out, and literally I've been doing this, this is what I've been working on uh, during our class. I finally figured out like a week or two ago that I'm eating because I'm, I know this sounds really dumb, I'm eating because I'm tired, right? Because it's like 11 o'clock at night and I should be in bed. <clears throat> and I finally realized uh, I, I, I spent the last week not eating after 8 o'clock except for fruits and vegetables. And I, I'm exhausted. I get to midnight. I have to go to bed at like 1030. Um, the reward of that was um, I could go through that routine and I could keep going. Does that make sense? 
Um, and I didn't, I didn't want to go to bed. Now it's another whole habit I got to work on, right? Um, but the reward of that food was I got to keep, I get to keep up. I wasn't hungry. It wasn't, it wasn't I was feeding, meeting a need for hunger. I just wanted to stay awake. Um, I needed that burst of energy. Uh, okay, so um, that awareness training is that first step for us. Uh, and it's not always going to be obvious. Um, and it's not always going to be um, the thing we think it is. But that sort of, I love the AA language, searching in fairness, personal inventory to figure out what my reward is. And then I think that literally that taking notes every time I go through the habit, writing down my cue. Um, don't beat yourself up about your habit. Right? So you're, you're not going to change by convincing yourself you feel that you're a horrible person because you do whatever you do. Um, especially if your habit isn't that horrible. Um, there's, a, there's a great line in hmm, the Bible. I think it's 2 Corinthians. But anyway, it's somewhere in the Bible, I'm pretty sure, where uh, the author says, uh, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a godly guilt that leads to repentance and there's a worldly guilt that leads to death. And, and I think often our habits lead us into this worldly guilt that just makes us feel bad about ourselves. And a lot of habits, that guilt leads me to do the habit again. Right? Uh, uh, if I eat because I'm stressed, then I feel bad about myself because I'm eating uh, and I know I shouldn't be, and so I eat some more because I feel bad. Right? Um, that's not effective. Um, don't be afraid of your habit to begin. Just be aware. Try, try to nail down what you think your cue is and what you think your reward is. Does that make sense? So far, so good? Okay. Any questions about that part? That part's actually really hard. Uh, but, but you can do it in a, in, a, in a couple weeks, I think, for most habits and figure out what's going on. Yeah, Bob. Exactly. So, so Bob's point is, uh, f- for example, uh, if, you're, if one of your issues is eating, um, it, the, the kind of food you eat can change energy levels, um, and having the right food, can have, you get a better energy. Absolutely right. That's why there's this trial and error bit, right? So if you start saying, hey, I think my, my cue is I feel tired, my routine is I get up and go have some food, and my reward is I have a little bit more energy, um, I can start, once I identify that, this is where we're going, I can start playing with my routine, okay? And I can say, all right, maybe I'm going to still have the cue of, of feeling tired and still want the reward of having energy. Maybe I go and I have a, I don't know, a, a carrot or a power bar or something that gives me, uh, that's better for me and gives me more energy and I don't have to eat as much and it changes the habit loop a little bit, right? Depending on what my goal is. Um, yeah, good, excellent point. Um, other questions about that, that awareness part? Uh, so uh, one of the um, you know, really basic things you can do is if, if you find you have a habit. So I, um, I remember in, in, in college I, had, um, I, I was a little bit of a procrastinator and I would do all my papers pretty late, uh, often the night before they were due. And I had a week in college where I had 60 pages due in, in that week. And so I had two 20-page papers, a 10-page paper, and two 5-page papers. And I started one of them the week beforehand. Not finished, but started the week beforehand. And then that week, I just, I just wrote. <clears throat> and I started to notice I have this weird habit when I'm writing is that I'll, I'll write for an hour or so, and then I'll break, and I'll play a game or watch a movie or something for 30 minutes, and I'll go back and work. Um, that works okay when you're doing a five-page paper in an evening. When you're doing 60 pages in a couple evenings, it does not work, right? There's just not enough time. Um, uh, and, and so, um, you know, identifying that habit was really helpful for me. And then I started saying, all right, um, wh- why am I being cued to want to break when I know I've got all this stress, I have all these long-term goals? Um, well, the reward was it made me less stressed, right? It, it was a destructive habit because it ultimately built my stress, right? After, after my 30 minutes of video games, I go back to my paper and it still needed 17 more pages and now it's 2 a.m. Um, but, but I was trapped in that loop, right? Um, identifying the cue and the reward is what helps you get out of that that, that routine, okay? Um, all right. <clears throat> so the, the first thing for us is this awareness. The second, the second um, behavior or the second tool we have to, to work on those obstacles is um, habit replacement or uh, habit reversal, okay? Um, and again, if I had the screens working, I'd have you look at this, but I don't. So just trust me that um, in uh, the Gospel of Luke, in the 11th chapter, the 24th verse, Jesus is talking um, actually, he's talking about demon possession, and he's having this whole conversation about um, by what power he casts out demons. Um, but then he says this really fascinating story. 
This is verse 24. He says, When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than, than at first. It is really true. Um, and and, and <clears throat> though Jesus is absolutely talking about spiritual um, warfare, there's, there's also this recognition that when we clean out junk in our lives, we don't replace it with God, we don't replace it with good things, um, then we become more vulnerable to worse junk coming in. Okay? Um, and, and, and actually, uh, you know, the, the analogy in Scripture would be, you know, the, the people who are drawn to Jesus are the prostitutes and the drunkards and the uh, tax collectors and the sinners, all the, all the people whose sin is really obvious, right? And, and they like Jesus and Jesus kind of likes them. And the folks that don't like Jesus are the folks who got that behavior out of their lives, right? They're the moral upstanding people, the, the, the religious leaders um, who are no longer drunkards or fornicators or whatever else. But they didn't replace those things with the love of God. They replaced those things with this pride and hypocrisy and judgmentalism that Jesus says is worse than those behaviors, right? Um, so <clears throat> here's how that relates to us for this habit replacement thing. Um, if, if your goal is simply to remove the routine, right? If you want to simply say, I'm going to stop eating sugar, period. Uh, it's not going to work. And in fact, you might end up worse than you were before. You might find yourself replacing uh, that routine with something that you dislike even more than what you used to have. The key to, to habit transformation is, habit, is routine replacement, right? It's to say, um, you really can't change cues once they're established. And you really, um, it's really difficult to change rewards once they're established. But you can change a routine. So, for example, um, if I <coughs> discover that I'm cued um, by uh, 10 o'clock on a work day because I'm getting bored, and I get up and go to the refrigerator to get something to eat, and I walk back, and the reward is I don't feel bored anymore. I walked around, I talked to somebody on the way there. Um, that boredom is alleviated. I can, I can replace the routine and keep the same cue and the same reward. So I can say, all right, uh, I'm going to be cued at 10 o'clock by being kind of bored in my office if I've been sitting there for an hour. I'm going to get up and go talk to somebody, um, walk around the building once or twice for some exercise, and make sure I stop at two offices and talk to those people for five minutes, and then come back to my office. And I still get the same reward, right? I'm not bored anymore. I got a little physical activity. I talked to people like I wanted to talk to people. But I changed the routine. I didn't go get any food, right? Um, this is exactly, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous is incredible at habit replacement. This is exactly what they encourage you to do, right? If you've ever been in AA, um, you get a sponsor. Sponsor uh, is, uh, your sponsor and the meeting in general, uh, is your habit routine replacement. So every time you're cued to want to drink alcohol, instead of drinking alcohol and having the reward of your stress and your sorrow going away, um, you have the same cue, I'm stressed, I feel bad, whatever. My routine is I call my sponsor. I talk to my sponsor for 20 minutes. And we talk about life and marriage and God and whatever we talk about. And then I go back and I get the same reward from that, which is my stress is better, right? Which is I feel connected to people again, which is uh, I'm no longer overwhelmed by fear or grief or whatever it is was driving me to drink in the first place. Um, now, you see the key, if I don't understand my reward and my cue, I can't know how to replace it, okay? So if, if my habit um, for getting up and getting a donut is really about the fact that um, my energy levels are low and I need to get more energy, then just walking and talking to somebody for five minutes is not going to be effective. Maybe I need to do 20 sit-ups and 20 push-ups and jog around the block, right? Um, that might get my energy back up. Um, but if I don't know what my reward and my cue are, I can't replace it effectively. Once I know, it's actually not that hard to replace routines. I mean, it, it takes some work, right? But if I know that I'm biting my nails because I'm stressed, and when I'm stressed, that's my behavior, I simply make a new routine that gives me that same sense of, of physical satisfaction, right? So in the, uh, in the habit book, he talks about this woman who bites her nails so much that they're always um, bleeding, and he says he gave her a note card, and he tells her... Um, uh, write down every time you ever bite your nails and what's going on, and she does all this work to figure out her, her cue and her reward. Then he says, all right, if your reward is that sense of physical satisfaction that you get from um, biting your nails, uh, and, and if cue is that sense of stress, that tingling in your fingers, do something else physical with your hand, 
that gives you that same sense of uh, release. Um, knock your hand on a wall for five minutes, right? Not hard, but just, you know, just do this for a while, okay? All right, now, now I've got that same sense of physical release and uh, the stress is a little bit better, but my nails are still intact. Um, so once you know your coup and your, and your re- reward, replacing your routine's not that hard. I don't want to sugarcoat it. It's still some work, uh, but it's very doable. Does that make sense a little bit? Any questions about that or how that works? Uh, I, have a, um, I have a friend who's a behavioral psychologist, and so this is what he does, right? His, he doesn't do um, psychotherapy like talk therapy. He, he works on behavioral replacement. And he, he once had a woman, unfortunately did not get to keep her as a patient. Um, she was schizophrenic and she had voices. And, and mainly it manifested as uh, a telephone ringing, and she would go and answer the telephone, and her dead mother would be on the line, and she would berate her for hours and hours and hours about how horrible she was. Her dead mother would berate, would berate this woman. Um, and he didn't get to keep her as a patient because she ended up be, being hospitalized and all these things. But um, what he wanted to do was not figure out why she thought her mother hated her. He wanted to, to work on her habit replacement, right? Um, <laughs> and this was his idea. You're cued by hearing the phone ring, right? Because she's schizophrenic. It was really, she really heard the phone ringing, though it wasn't ringing. Um, and all you want in the world is to hang up, but you can't, right? The reward is to get away from your mother who's deceased. Um, his suggestion was, when the phone rings, just don't answer it, right? Like, uh, just replace the routine of answering the phone with not answering the phone. Um, now, I don't know if that would have worked or not, but it's a pretty interesting idea, right? She ended up on all this psychotherapy and medication and all these things, and he just wanted to teach her to not answer the phone. Um, so uh, that idea, basic, but it's, it's really powerful. If you can figure out how to uh, identify your reward, your cue, and then replace your routine, um, now, uh, the, the problem is that ultimately uh, th- that, that process works pretty well for a while. Uh, and then very often we find that, uh, in, especially in times of significant stress, people revert to their original routine. Um, there's a great story uh, in, in Power of Habit about uh, Tony Dungy. You know who t- Tony Dungy is? He was the coach of the Buccaneers and then the Colts. And um, really pretty interesting guy. So my understanding is that he had uh, four job interviews as head coach for NFL teams before he got the Buccaneers job. And they kept turning him down because nobody really bought into his theory. And his theory was that you could teach a football team to be great, not with a complex playbook, but by working on habit formation, by teaching them uh, to know exactly what habits to work at so that their responses became automatic. Uh, so they could be milliseconds faster than the other team. Uh, and his thought was, uh, in football, uh, if you could be just a, a second or two faster than the other team, uh, you could win all the time. And the Buccaneers finally hired him because the Buccaneers were like the worst team in the league. Uh, when they hired him, they were just terrible. And actually, he turned the team around, uh, and they were incredibly successful. And um, they had all these great records in the regular season, but then they'd get to the postseason and they'd fall apart. Uh, again and again and again, they'd fall apart in the postseason. Uh, and so eventually the Buccaneers let him go, and he went to the Colts. And the year after he left the Buccaneers, they won the Super Bowl um, using his strategy and his, uh, his, his team. Uh, and then in the Colts, um, he had the same situation. He turned the team around. They had Peyton Manning, but they kept losing games. Uh, and they became uh, great under Dungy, but then uh, they would fall apart in the postseason. Uh, and, and what Dungy believed was that... Um, when, when things got really stressful, um, when it wasn't just a regular game, but when their, their future of the postseason was on the line, they would revert to their old habits, right? So they'd, they'd done this great job of learning these skills, of knowing exactly which cues to look for and what order to look for them so they could be just that much faster. But when they got to the postseason, they thought, oh, this one's really important, and they went back to their old behaviors. Uh, and they weren't fast, right? Um, and... and <clears throat> Wait, this, we do this all the time, right? We have this habit of uh, <clears throat> whatever, of um, going and, and, and getting a donut at work, and then uh, we get out of it, we, we feel like we've solved the habit, and then something really stressful happens, right? I mean, um, somebody you care about in the church passes away, and you're immediately at the refrigerator getting donuts, right? Um, and 
this happens in serious ways too. There's all this research that's done about habit replacement um, and for, for years the sort of Alcoholics Anonymous model was sort of not in vogue uh, in the scientific community because it doesn't, it's not really rooted in the same behavioral science uh, as, uh, or they, they didn't recognize it was rooted in the same behavioral science as uh, a lot of these psychologists and psychologists were, were working on. Um, but they realized something interesting. They realized again and again that this behavior replacement model we're talking about worked pretty well for most people until they got to a serious time of stress. And then alcoholics would revert to their drinking, right? So someone's mother would, um, someone would be sober for two years, their mother would pass away, uh, and then they'd be straight to the bar, right? After two years of sobriety. Because in times of extreme stress, we have uh, a tendency to revert to previous habits. So uh, <clears throat> Dungey said that was why his teams kept failing, right? They kept failing because in times of extreme stress, uh, in the postseason, they'd go back to their old style of playing football, which wasn't as effective and then they lose. And then in 2005, um, Tony's son, Jamie, committed suicide. Um, and it was at the end of their football season, and um, it was just devastating. And Tony was really close with his family, and the, the team knew Jamie. I mean, Jamie had been in the locker room, and um, it was just a heartbreaking thing. Uh, and the... the just a few days after that, and he was back on the field because the team and his family both said, you got to go do something. You can't, can't just sit around. You'll go crazy. And um, kind of had their normal postseason experience. But that summer after Jamie's death, something began to change. Uh, and the team uh, had this mentality they were going to do something great for their coach. And there's all these great stories about players um, who, you know, just weren't physically affectionate who had these big bear hugs and said, hey, coach, we're here for you. Um, but, but that next season, they won their first seven games in a row. They were 12 and four. Um, and they got to the postseason. Uh, and for the first time, one of his teams kept believing in the strategy. And they won every game in the postseason. And they went uh, and ultimately won the Super Bowl that year. That was 2006, 2007, I believe. Um, uh, and, and Dungy says to this day that what happened is they finally believed in the system despite all the stress. Uh, and, and this is what um, the folks in AA kept telling all these scientific researchers about transformation. They said, the key, the thing you're missing is God. Right? You're missing uh, that uh, in the midst of all that stress, you need God to help you stay faithful. You, you need belief in something beyond yourself so that you can keep to your commitment to be sober when the stress comes. Um, by the way, uh, Jesus says the same thing. Uh, so in um, Mark 11, uh, Jesus talks a little bit about um, prayer. And he says, this is uh, Mark chapter 11, verse 22. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Um, Jesus is saying uh, it's not sufficient just to ask for it, right? You have to believe um, that, that that faith is what allows transformation to happen and what allows transformation to continue in the face of stress and hardship. Now, now don't get me wrong. Um, the, the, there are churches, every church is filled with people who um, are alcoholics, um, who are still drinking despite their pious faith. I'm not saying that believing in God is the key to kicking your habits. I'm saying that if you use this model um, that I think is um, both scientific and biblical, it will not be sufficient without God. Right? Um, that eventually you will hit that point of incredible stress in your life. And if you don't have faith in something larger than yourself, if you don't believe that God can carry you through that, um, you will revert back uh, to your old habits. Um, By the way, the, the, um, the, the book Power of Habit talked to us a little bit, and they said uh, when, when the folks from AA came back again and again and said, hey, the reason we're still sober is faith, is God, uh, the, the researchers really hated that answer. Right? And they said they, they hated that answer not because they didn't like God or they didn't like faith. It's because, you know, science is the study of things we can observe, and you can't observe that, right? There's no way to test God to see if he's right or wrong or, or if he really works or not. Um, and so they came down to this idea that it was ultimately... <clears throat> belief in anything, right? That if you believe something bigger than yourself, 
you, you could um, hold true to that transformation even in the times of, of great stress. Obviously, um, I believe, and I think we believe, that um, believing in God has more benefit than just a psychological one, right? Uh, and that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, hey, if you believe, I'll do it. He's not saying your belief makes it happen. He's saying, I want to see you trust me. If you trust me, I will show up. But if you trust me, um, I will answer your prayers. Not always the way you want them to be answered, by the way, but I will answer your prayers. Um, so the idea is, in those times of, of great stress and um, in those times of great turmoil, when I'm inclined to go back to my routine, my old routine, um, it's, it's, it's faith that allows me to stay strong. It's faith that allows me to say, no, I don't have to go back. I believe I can be different. I believe God will help me be different. Does that idea kind of make sense? Um, any questions about that? Um, yeah, Bob. Yeah, the, the act as if or great transitional word. Yeah, I love that. In fact, um, I have a friend who always says, fake it till you make it. Um, I, I think fake it till you make it is actually pretty good theology, right? Um, uh, in our new member class, I always quote this, this line from the Gospel of Matthew, the sixth chapter, where Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Um, and part of what he's saying is, fake it till you make it, right? Um, maybe you don't care about poor people at all. But if you start putting your resources into helping alleviate poverty, over time you'll find yourself caring about poor people, right? Um, do the right thing and eventually you'll find yourself. So absolutely, I think that's part of the, uh, of the gospel. I really do. Is Sometimes we make, the right, we make the right choice. We choose to trust Jesus even when we don't trust him, right? Remember the father whose son is ill and he goes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, uh, can you help my son um, you know, if you're able? And Jesus says, all things are possible for him who believes. If I'm able, all things are possible for him who believes. And the man says, I believe, help my unbelief. Right? I love that line. Right? He's saying, hey, look, I'm really working at believing in you. Like, I'm working at faith. Will you help me work at it? Because I don't have it yet, but boy, I want it really bad. Right? I think that's beautiful. Yeah. Yes. No, I totally agree. Um, the, w one of the first things Mike said that I, I want to repeat, um, he said that belief and behavior um, are, are organically connected, right? So if, if I believe something, but my behavior is not in, in accordance to that belief, one of those things will change. And very often, belief changes to match behavior, right? uh, which is kind of what Jesus is saying, right? Where your treasure is, or your heart will be also. Um, have good behavior and your belief will follow. Um, and, and the reverse is true. If, if I find um, I'm living into a behavior that's profoundly un, un-Christ-like, if I'm not willing to change my behavior, I'm going to end up changing my faith. Right? Um, and, and that's part of the reason this is so important, right? That if, that if we're not willing to put the work in to change, if we're not willing to be a people who are always working to be transformed, uh, then we're going to end up saying, I don't need to be changed. And then we're going to say, I don't need Jesus. Right? If I don't need change, I don't need Jesus. Uh, 
And, and I think that's huge to say, no, um, following Jesus means I'm always involved in this process of trying to be more Christ-like. I'm always working on changing. I'm always working on um, transforming my life and really asking God to transform my life. And, and I'm, I'm a part of that. Yeah, that's huge. Okay. Um, I want to do, um, so w- one last point. This is, so we're talking about the um, sort of the four solutions to the three obstacles. Uh, and the first obstacle is the lack of awareness. The second is lack of progress, process. Third is lack of support. And we said our, our solutions, uh, that awareness training bit, uh, and then um, the, the process of, of routine replacement. And then the first part of support is, is faith, right? God's our first um, anchor, our first um, support. But the, the second part is, is we need people as well. Um, and, and, and I think one of the great challenges in, in transformation is that we often try to go it alone. And I would suggest that almost every habit, um, you will be better off having someone help you. Many of them, you will not succeed at all by doing it yourself. Um, uh, and, and so that might be, you know, if, if that's something as simple as I want to work on um, eating less sugar, um, involve people in that with you. Uh, and, and if you don't involve people in that with you, um, uh, my, my, uh, <laughs> I keep trying to convince my wife that I should, I should uh, diet a little bit, and, and she's not on board with that idea. Uh, and she's, Jim, you're fine, whatever else. And I said, no, I want to. No, you're fine. Um, the problem with her not being on board with that idea is she keeps buying really delicious things, right? So I came home, I think it was yesterday or the night before, and there was a, a bag of mini Twix bars on top of the refrigerator, well, that was like kryptonite, right? I mean, that was terrible. And I had, you know, 12 or 13 of those. And then, not really, I, I only had nine. And, um, and then afterwards, I realized, uh, you know, I got to get Krista on board with this diet that I'm doing because, you know, this is not, uh, you got to have people that are working with you on your habit. It doesn't have to be everybody in the world, um, but doing it yourself is really hard, okay? Um, there's a great line from Power of Habit where the author says, um, when people join groups, where change seems possible, the potential for that change to occur seems more real. For most people who overhaul their lives, there are no seminal moments, seminal moments or life-altering disasters. There are simply communities, sometimes of just one other person, who make change believable. Uh, I, I love that. I mean, I, I love that idea that for most people who overhaul their lives, there are no seminal moments or life-altering disasters there are simply communities who make change believable. And I think we've got to find communities that will help us in our habit transformation. And, and the more profound that habit, the more um, compelling that habit, the more we have a craving for that habit, the more we need community to help us. Um, there, there are no Lone Ranger Christians in Scripture, right? There's never a story, um, hmm, well, let's not say there's never. Uh, and there are almost no stories in Scripture of people of faith um, doing anything on their own, right? I mean, Jesus sends out the disciples in pairs, and um, Paul takes Silas and Timothy with him, and when Elijah goes on the mountain and says, I'm the last guy out there, they want to kill me, God says, no, you're not, right? There's 7,000 more out there, and go pick up Elisha, he's going to be your buddy, right? Um, the, the, the idea that we're going to be transformed on our own, even when it's just me and God, is probably not realistic, and it's probably not biblical. Uh, we're called to do this together. Uh, a number of folks who, are, um, who deal with alcohol addiction and, and um, one particular friend who's often said, yeah, I'd like to not be addicted to alcohol, but I'm not going to go to AA because those guys are a bunch of drunks. Uh, and I said, buddy, you're a drunk too, right? You know that. Um, but I hear that often, right? I hear often people saying, boy, I, um, I don't get involved in AA or, or whatever other support group I need or I don't want to tell my friends or my family about this habit because I'm just so embarrassed. Or, opposite, because I think I'm better than them, right? That those guys are a bunch of losers, and I have my life pretty well together, and they don't. Um, and, and I would suggest that both those ideas, that, that I'm too ashamed or I'm too good, are, are going to be destructive to my transformation. Um, that, that if I want to change, I've got to involve people in that change. Uh, as Paul says in Ephesians, uh, you've got to expose things to the light. So if I've got a habit I need to change, and it's embarrassing, I've got to find somebody uh, to whom I can expose that habit. Or to say, hey, I want you to know this is going on in my life. I got a gambling addiction, and it's really embarrassing, and it's causing problems in my life, and um, I need somebody to know about it. Um, uh, you also got to find, even if you feel like you're too good for it, right? 
enough humility to say, you know what, um, those guys might be losers, um, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a drunk too. And I'm just not better than them. And um, boy, that's, that can take some real work. I mean, that takes some real humility to say, no, I'm, that's where I belong. Um, but boy, um, there's a power and a freedom that comes to recognizing that you need help. Um, I, I, I want to suggest that this is kind of the purpose of the church. Right? That this is kind of who we were always intended to be. We were always intended to be a group that helped each other work on our transformation. Uh, this Sunday in worship, we're going to be reading the book of Acts. And I'm going to read Acts chapter 2, 37 to 47. I don't, really, don't want to read all of that tonight, but I want to read a little bit of it because um, it's, a, it's a picture of what the church could look like or should look like. And um, there's a recognition for me when I hear these words that um, I couldn't do this alone, but I could do it in community. So this is uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 42. This is what happens after um, that first great sermon of Peter uh, when the church starts to grow. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to the number daily those who were being saved. I love that picture of uh, of the church. Um, I love that picture of, of the church as a community that comes together and says, hey, um, we're all losers, right? We're all drunks. We're all sinners. We're all messed up. Um, let's do this together. And we, we often talk about, or I often talk about the fact that um, AA tends to be a safer place for people than church. Um, and it's safer for a couple of reasons. The, the first reason is, is fair, that it's more specific, right? That if you go to AA, you all have the same problem. In church, we have a huge variety of problems, right? Um, my problems are not your problems. And, um, uh, so the fact that, we share a speci- uh, that people in AA share a specific problem is really a, a great thing. I think it helps with that freedom. But there's another benefit in AA, which is that um, there's this recognition that uh, we have this shared vulnerability, right? That we're all messed up together. We all need each other's help to be whole again. And boy, the church should have that, right? I mean, we don't all have the same problem, but we do, right? Our problem is selfishness and sin, and we've all got it. Uh, and we ought to be the place where it's safe to come and, and admit that you're selfish and sinful and you need help in it. Um, and, I, you know, my, my, my heart is that um, our church would be a place where um, people feel comfortable admitting that they're screwed up. Um, and you don't have to get in front of the whole church and make an announcement about it, but, uh, you know, where you'd be able to sit down with some friends in church and say, hey, you know what, this is what's going on in my life. Uh, I, I know that I'm uh, in my 30s and I'm supposed to be better at this stuff, but I'm dealing with um, pornography addiction or I'm dealing with um, overeating or I'm dealing with alcohol problems or whatever it is, um, and I just need someone else to know. I need someone who's safe, who, who can trust me and love me and journey with me through that. That's what the church is supposed to be, right? And you know, we always say it's not a museum of saints. It's a, it's a hospital for sinners. Uh, and, and, and so um, I hope that as you're looking at for your community, uh, for whatever your habit is, whether it's, um, you know, something as profound as an addiction or, or um, whether it's something like not getting up for donuts at your desk, uh, I hope there's community here that you can find. Um, but if you can't find it here, I want you to believe that there is Christian community for every problem under the sun. Uh, and if you have a habit uh, that you'd like to see transformed in your life and uh, you're too embarrassed to bring it up in church, I understand that, um, but you know you need somebody to journey with you in that, um, come talk to me. I mean, I, I guarantee you uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a group of people going through the same problem you are, or at least an individual going through the same problem you are who would love to be uh, supported by you and support you in, as well. Um, and I think the more we're isolated in our sin, the more we're isolated in our habits, uh, the more um, ingrained those become until, like Mike says, eventually we, we have to decide to give up on faith because we're too embarrassed to give up on our sin. Um, so, so let the church be a place for you in that. And um, if, if, if it's just not a casual thing you can bring up, let me help you find that community. I, I really believe that um, all this transformation stuff is great, but if you don't have Christ and you don't have community in your life, uh, you can't make it stick. Questions about that? Is that? Um, 
ring true for people? Okay. Uh, yeah, Joan. Yeah, so Joan just said that um, we do a lot of outward-looking ministry for our community, for folks that need help, but we ought to be able to do the same thing for our community, our our church, our family. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Gene, did I see your hand? No, I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, sorry. Um, No, and I I agree. And um, this is harder. It's easier to help people outside. Um, And it's also... um, you know, there's that the distinction that so uh, you know everybody knows who Nietzsche was. He was the German philosopher who was the sort of the nihilism. And um, I have a friend who always says that if Jesus was wrong, Nietzsche was right. Uh, I'm pretty sure Jesus was right, so we're okay. Um, but Nietzsche's a pretty interesting guy, um, and he he says that his problem with Christians is that they're really good at pity and really bad at compassion. Um, that pity is the idea that um, yeah, I'll give you a handout, right? I feel bad for you. Here's money. Compassion is. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get down on your level and suffer with you and journey with you. Um, I, I think there's some truth in that, right? Not that Christians are uniquely bad in that. I think humans tend to uh, like pity over compassion. Um, part of the problem with compassion is you have to be vulnerable with somebody else, right? So I give you a handout, um, then you walk away and I feel good about myself and um, I'm, I'm still in my ivory tower. Compassion means, hey, I've done that too. Hey, I've been there as well hey, I understand your problems because i got other problems and let me tell you mine since you told me yours, right? Um, compassion's tough, um, but I think it's critical for our Christian faith. Yeah, Mike. Absolutely. Yeah, it's huge. Um, I really love the idea that, that trust is the, the fuel of community. That's neat. Um, I think that's true. And I think um, you know, one, of the, one of the great challenges for community in the church, uh, I know I'm out, I'm out of time, but one of the great challenges for community in the church is that we're told that being Christian means um, living a certain lifestyle, right? Having your life together. And, and so if you don't have your life together, then mm, wow, what's wrong with you and how could you do that? And so there's that old adage about, you know, you get to church, you have a million fights with your kids in the car and uh, half a million fights with your wife in the car and you finally get here and someone says, how's your day going? You say, great, thanks, how are you? You know, um, uh, you know and, and th- that's okay, but um, boy, wouldn't it be great if, if we had enough trust in our community that we could say, hey, you know what, I'm having a crappy day, actually. Thanks for asking. Do you have a minute? I'd love to tell you about why. Um, And and I think that um, that idea that it's okay to not be okay is really tough, especially for Christians to embrace, right? That um, it's okay to not be okay, that that my life isn't polished and pristine, and guess what? Surprise, surprise, everyone else is faking too, right? Nobody's life is polished and pristine. And boy, what a gift that is to recognize that. That's that's the foundation of trust. It is that I, I feel safe being with you and you feel safe being with me because we're all messed up together. 
Uh, and Christ is still our Lord. Yeah, that's huge. Um, okay, I, I know I'm out of time. So um, two quick things. Um, the, the first is uh, I'm working on emailing out the notes and the audio versions of these classes. So if you didn't get an email this week, um, please let me know afterwards so I can make sure I add your name to the email list. I, I think I just used last session's email list, and so I, I don't want to leave anybody out. Um, the second thing is uh, I really want you to keep thinking about if you're, if you're working on a new habit or a, or a change in habit, uh, what's the next step for you? So a goal without a plan is a wish, right? Thanks, Wendy. That's good. Um, so if you've got a goal of changing a habit, um, I'm trying to give you the tools for a plan. I, I'd love for you to start working on this stuff this week. Uh, and ha- let me help or help each other. Um, but if you're looking for community, if you're looking for some help about the, the awareness or the habit replacement or routine replacement, whatever, talk to me. But I, I really would love this to be an experiment for you where you get to say, hey, um, if I can change this habit, I can change sugar or biting my nails, I can change something bigger, right? And not that those aren't big, but I mean, I, um, I'd love for you to learn the skill set, right? Uh, and part of the skill set is how do I find the community I can trust that can support me through it? Um, okay, let's, uh, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for the gift of the church, that the church is a place where we can come and be vulnerable with each other. Uh, we thank you for uh, the gift of your presence and the gift of prayer and the knowledge that, uh, Lord, whatever we ask for in your name, if we believe it will happen, uh, that you will show up and fulfill those promises. Um, we thank you for the knowledge that transformation is possible, Lord, and that if we simply are aware of, of what cues and rewards us and replace those routines with things that honor you, and we can be new people through the power of your Holy Spirit. Uh, And we pray, Lord, that you would be with us this week as we go through this process, as we work at transformation in our lives. Uh, Lord, we pray that uh, we do the work. We don't want it just to be a a, a wish. We want it to be a plan of transformation that honors you and brings glory to your name. It's in Christ's holy and powerful name we pray. Amen. Go in peace.